Good morning, this is David Bennett, and this is Bitcoin And, a podcast where I try to find the edge effect between the worlds of Bitcoin, gaming, permaculture, podcasting, and education to gain a better understanding of all. Edge effect is a concept from ecology describing a greater diversity of life where the edges of two systems overlap. While species from either system can be found at the edge, it is important to note there are species in the overlap that exist in neither system, and that is what I seek to uncover. So join me in discovering the variety of things being created as Bitcoin rubs up against other systems. It is 6.04 a.m. Central Daylight Time. It is the 25th of August, 2021. This is episode 467 of Bitcoin. And why is the price dropping? Oh, that's right. It's the end of the month. And that's when futures expiry happens. You know how many articles that I've seen about, oh, Bitcoin's retracing. Oh, my God. Dude, this happens at the end of every single month. That's why I hate fucking futures, man. I hate the futures market. It's just all bullshit. Anyway, so that if you're wondering what's going on, it's the futures expiry date. It's not some kind of weird sentiment. I just, I, I don't know, man. I, I don't get it. Of course, it's also probably because there's like, you know, good news out there about Bitcoin and we're going to get into some of that. Let's start it with Blockstream raises $210 million and is now valued at $3.2 billion. Holy shit. Good job, Adam Back, Samson Moe. Let's get into this one. It is written by Nick Hoffman for Bitcoin Magazine. Bitcoin infrastructure firm Blockstream has announced a $210 million Series B financing round led by investment management company Bailey Gifford and Ifinex. The raise now puts the company at a $3.2 billion valuation, says a press release sent to Bitcoin Magazine. Some of the money raised will be spent on advancing Blockstream's Bitcoin mining products and services like Blockstream Energy. The new mining infrastructure they are building is planning or planned to be used in many partnerships, such as their collaboration with Square, where they are developing a solar-powered mining facility. The rest of the money will be used to build financial infrastructure with Bitcoin-focused financial products and the Liquid Sidechain, which is a sidechain-based settlement network that enables faster, more confidential Bitcoin transactions. Quote, we have enormous respect for Blockstream's founders and management team, and we believe its settlement network for Bitcoin-based assets and securities has the potential to transform the design and operation of capital markets, said a Bailey Gifford spokesperson. Blockstream also acquired the intellectual property of mining hardware manufacturer Spondulis and announced their core team will be joining Blockstream to build Blockstream's ASIC arm. Spondulis has been on the scene since 2013, building out five successful mining products, as well as delivering energy-efficient and high-performance mining hardware. Quote, the Spondulis team pedigree in Bitcoin ASIC design and engineering complements our enterprise-class mining infrastructure and will accelerate our continuing expansion and decentralization of the Bitcoin mining space, said Blockstream CEO Dr. Adam Back. Quote, Blockstream is bringing on board the Spondulis core team 
and acquiring a related intellectual property to launch the world's first enterprise class miner next year. Okay, well, that's great. However, where are you going to get the chips from? I mean, I'm just saying, dude, this is just, <laughs> this is a physical problem that everybody is having in the mining industry right now is the lack of chips. I mean, car manufacturers can't get chips. Computer manufacturers themselves are unable to acquire the little things. How are we going to get ASICs? Yeah, ASICs are bottom of the barrel. When it, when it comes to foundries and, you know, people like a chip fabrication, yeah, ASICs are like literally the, the redheaded stepchild of the bunch. Car manufacturers have a lot of money. Computer manufacturers have a lot of money. And they are buying, and or they are basically, when, when they buy chips, it's not like they're just buying a box of chips, okay? What they're doing is they're buying floor space and time at the fabrication facilities to be able to have their chips actually built. And who gets left behind like the little redhead stepchild it is? Mining ASICs, that's right. Because they are like, you know, they are like literally the simplest chips to build. <clears throat> you can build them really fast, but as far as, you know, how much, you know, return on investment of your fabs floor space, you know, ASICs don't do it. They just don't. So my question becomes, where are they going to get the ASICs from? What's really terrifying here, people, is that Taiwan is probably going to fall. And when it falls, you know, honestly, we've got may we've got Samsung and like, I don't know, like one or two other fabs in, in South Korea. And that's pretty much it. Why? Well, because Texas Instruments basically went out of business as far as their chip manufacturing uh, was concerned. Motorola, I don't even know if they've got a chip fab anymore. And if they do, they're probably just buying them from Taiwan. And like I said, Taiwan's probably going to fall. To who? China. Who did you think? I th they're going to pull a Hong Kong on Taiwan just, you know, in, in the exact same fashion. Not a shot fired. They're going to stack their, you know, their legislature with people that are, you know, loyal to the communist Chinese party. And they're going to infiltrate and destroy Taiwan from the inside out, just like they did Hong Kong. We lost Hong Kong. And when I mean we, I mean the free world. Hong Kong was a bastion of freedom. You know, I'm, and I didn't even have to go there. I don't have to go there to, to, to know that Hong Kong was a bastion of freedom. You could just tell. You could just look at the buildings. You could just look at their commerce. You could just look at how many people from the West, from Africa, from Latin America. They all, a whole bunch of people moved to Hong Kong. And if they didn't get out, if they didn't get out before the Chinese Communist Party, you know, took over, well, then they're just kind of screwed. But there's not much we can do about it. So, again, the question remains, how is Blockstream going to source chips if they don't have their own fab, they don't have their own foundry, how are they going to do it? Right, that's a good question. It's not that they can't, it's just that... It seems to be a difficult proposition at best. That's all I'm saying. Let's move on to this one, which is also good news for, for Bitcoin, which is, you know, can also trigger price uh, plunges. I, I still don't get this. How is it 
that the second largest United States mortgage lender accepting payments in Bitcoin can like actually trigger like a price decrease. <laughs> now, it didn't trigger it. However, you know, there's like lots of good news on the horizon and every single time I get a batch of good news and it's not the end of the month where futures expiry happens, I get, I get price contractions and I, I'm just like, so do you just sell any news? Is that the way this or whatever? Let's get into this one. This is actually from CNBC and was published on August the 19th and I completely missed it. Uh, starting later this year, U.S. home buyers will have the option to pay for their mortgage in Bitcoin. United Wholesale Mortgage, which made its public debut in January via special purpose acquisition merger, announced plans this week to accept cryptocurrency for home loans in what is being billed as a first for national mortgage industries. <clears throat> Quote, we've evaluated the feasibility and we're looking forward to being the first mortgage company in the United States to accept cryptocurrency to satisfy mortgage payments, CEO Matt Ishiba, Ishbia said in the company's second quarter earnings call on Monday. Quote, that's something we've been working on and we're excited that hopefully in Q3, we can actually execute on that before anyone in the country because we are a leader in technology and innovation. The Michigan-based mortgage company confirmed to CNBC that it's aiming to start by accepting Bitcoin through UWM, or sorry, though UWM is in the process of evaluating Ether and other cryptocurrencies as well. Of course you are. Of course you immediately start shitcoining. Of course you do. Quote, we are evaluating the feasibility and requirements in order to accept cryptocurrency to satisfy mortgage payments, said Ishbia in a tweet via the company's account. UWM, the nation's second biggest mortgage lender after Quicken, the Detroit-based lending giant owned by Rocket Companies, works solely through wholesale channels, meaning that the company employs a fleet of brokers who then connect clients to home loans. The push into decentralized digital monies comes at a time of heightened scrutiny of crypto from all sides in the United States. Revamped crypto tax rules are a part of the $1 trillion, actually it's $1.2 trillion infrastructure bill, and financial authorities like Treasury Secretary Janet Yellen, SEC Chair Gary Gensler, and Fed Chief Jerome Powell have all spoken recently on the topic of whether to regulate cryptocurrencies. It is unclear uh, whether UWM will hold the cryptocurrency it accepts or convert it to fiat at the point of transaction. The company did not immediately get back to CNBC with that information. Uh, well, so here we go. Uh, the, there's a couple of things here. The second largest mortgage, uh, mortgage lender in the United States accepting payment in Bitcoin. Okay, that's good. What's odd <clears throat> is that, uh, let's see, United Wholesale Mortgage, the company in question, made its public debut in January. Its public debut in January. Uh, what I'm confused about is, you know, and I'm not, you know, I'm not going to take the time to look into it, but if somebody knows out there, has United Wholesale Mortgage been around for a long time or did they literally just start up? Because if they literally just started up and they're already the second mortgage, second largest mortgage lender in the United States, that's kind of scary. 
I'm just saying. I don't know. Maybe, uh, maybe it's just me and I just can't wrap my head around things like this. Whatever. Let's move on. Bitcoiners know something that you don't. This is written by Henry Behar for Bitcoin Magazine. The longest chapter in Machiavelli's masterpiece, Discourses on Livy, is titled On Conspiracies. He praises conspiracy as the finest mode of overthrowing any regime because, quote, to be able to make open war is granted to few. To be able to conspire against them is granted to everyone, end quote. In typical Machiavellian, Machiavellian fashion, the chapter praises fraud, deception, and lying to further one's private advantage as the proper mode of action. That is, if they seek to effect regime change. Contrast this with the doctrines of an Anar- anac- oh my God, anarcho-capitalism, which are founded from principles and deduction, <clears throat> the root principle being that of natural law. It begins with assertions. All of its ethics, politics, and economics growing from that root. For decades, their, proposed, <clears throat> their prospects look grim. Cries to return to the gold standard, grow the Libertarian Party, run in local elections and infiltrate think tanks, or worse, the Senate was the predominant strategy. By their logic, even revolution was questionable, as it would essentially be throwing out one gang of thieves for another gang of thieves. Democracy, the God that failed. <coughs> Excuse me. The study of natural law is reached a priori, that is, knowledge deduced from principles alone. For example, no two parallel straight lines can ever cross. Two plus two equals four, etc. On the other hand, their a posteriori conclusions or empirical observations were this. The world is governed by a tyrannical elite utilizing the central bank, resulting in the perpetual destruction of wealth, continuous warfare, and an expanding bureaucracy hell-bent on regulating every aspect of the individual's private life. They made it clear what the actions of these tyrants will result in and what they intend to do. They never made it clear what we ought to do about them. It took Bitcoin, a technology, to reveal the path of greatest effect. We've heard Bitcoin referred to as everything from a macro hedge to a protocol that redefines time and space. Here's another, a tool for maximum effect in our conspiracy to overthrow the useless ruling class of bureaucrats. As the Greek shipping magnate Aristotle Onassis stated, quote, the secret of business is to know something that nobody else knows. Replace business with distributed monetary engineering protocols and you have the universe of Machiavellian Bitcoiners. Oh no. (laughs) As if Bitcoin maximalist wasn't bad enough, now we're going to go for Machiavellian Bitcoiners? Anyway, focused only on effect, not principles or ethics. We're here to win. If If you've been buying Bitcoin for any significant period of time, ask yourself, what do you know that bureaucrats don't? There are the obvious answers. Hardness of money is a determining factor in storing value over time, reaching final settlement without a third party, gaining control over your property through the magic of cryptography. But note what's on the other side of these value propositions. Outwitting the people debasing money's value storage capabilities, circumventing any and all third parties, making property seizure at the hand of bureaucrats impossible, 
On the other side of the wonderful things Bitcoin can accomplish for an individual is what it can accomplish for our collective to defeat a clearly defined enemy. The road ahead is long and certainly not over, but Bitcoiners can say with confidence that thus far, this enemy has been swiftly outsmarted. With only approximately 2.5 million BTC currently floating on exchanges, this means the great majority of BTC is already secured and held, likely by individuals who knew something their respective bureaucratic overlords didn't. If the bureaucratic's, bureaucrats knew, the price would have already skyrocketed, considering there are millions of them in the United States alone. Bitcoiners, by their sheer hard-headedness and fitness to reality, are collectively insisting the entire world compete in the arms race over roughly only 13% of the total supply, i.e. our scraps. History will read this as a checkmate. As demand increases and price soars, bureaucrats will be left with one option, how to cleverly get Bitcoiners to sell their Bitcoin. I encourage you to not, so that when the time is right, we can take effect and build a world free of these parasites and for once actually win. Wow. Okay. I'm not exactly sure that Machiavellian Bitcoiners is the way to go for the narrative, but, you know, uh, it's not like I can stop it, so let's move on. Banking giant Citigroup filed to trade Bitcoin futures. Oh joy, another futures trading group. Yay. Can't wait for the end of that month. This is a Bitcoin Magazine's Alex McShane writing, <clears throat> the U.S. banking giant Citigroup is currently awaiting approval to begin trading Chicago Mercantile Exchange Bitcoin futures. Coindesk reported earlier today, an anonymous source within the bank told Coindesk that Citigroup is currently dealing with a recent uptick in demand for Bitcoin exposure amongst their clients. And if approved, Citi would join the ranks of Goldman Sachs and become the second major bank to offer Bitcoin futures trading. A spokesperson for Citigroup wrote to Coindesk via email, quote, our clients are increasingly interested in this space and we are monitoring these developments. Given the many questions around regulatory frameworks, supervisory exp expectations, and other factors, we are being very thoughtful about our approach. We are presently considering products such as futures for some of our institutional clients as these operate under strong regulatory frameworks, end quote. Citigroup seeking Bitcoin futures trading approval is just the latest in a long line of conservative investment institutions venturing into Bitcoin Wells Fargo and JP Morgan both recently filed for passive Bitcoin funds. Recently, Coinbase announced a partnership with one of the largest traditional banks in Japan, Mitsubishi UFG Financial Group, which will offer its account holders exclusive onboarding to the exchange platform. In July, the Bank of New York Mellon, or BNY Mellon, announced it would back the launch of a new London-based cryptocurrency exchange called Pure Digital, the first major Bitcoin trading platform backed by a consortium of large banks. At the time, global head of foreign exchange at BNY Mellon, Jason Vitali, spoke to the future of Bitcoin at large traditional banks. Quote, digital assets are only going to become more embedded in global markets in the years ahead, and this collaboration accords with BNY Mellon's wider strategy to develop a digital asset capability for clients across the entire trade life cycle. End quote. What does that shit mean? We won. 
Like, okay, <clears throat> I, I bitch about futures. Here's the issue. There's no way that traditional economists and, you know, trading guys and, and floor dudes and, you know, there's no way these guys are not going to apply the legacy financial system structures to Bitcoin and the rest of the cryptocurrency crew, I guess, if you want to call them that. There's no way that they can't. All right. First of all, is because of the existing regulations that are in place. That's what, you know, Homeboy was saying about why they were going to start offering uh, futures, right? Was that it was a, they want that product because it operates under a strong regulatory framework. What does that mean? They don't have to redesign the wheel and they don't want to. They don't, like, they don't want to take the time they don't want to to jack with the SEC. They have to do that on a daily basis anyway. So what do they do? They pick a product that is already highly regulated, hence Bitcoin futures, right? Now, the second thing about all this is why Bitcoin already won. It, are all these statements from all these banks that are basically saying, look, this shit is here. It's here to last it's here forever and we're just going to stop fighting it and we're going to start embedding all this stuff into our legacy financial products and services offerings it's done we already won they just i guess the bureaucrats from the story before they just don't know it yet i don't know they should they, I mean, they should be looking at this, but when Goldman Sachs and, you know, the bank of, you know, like the BNY Mellon and Citigroup and all these guys, when they're all saying the same shit, basically there's, this is not going away. Bitcoin is not going to go away. And all of our customers want exposure. And the only way that we're going to give it to them is through a highly already there regulated vehicle. Yeah, I, 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 to me, I think we just won, but let's move on. Martin Young has this one from Cointelegraph. Bitcoin hash rate triples since June 28th in recovery from the China syndrome, which is a good movie, by the way. <coughs> let's get into it. <coughs> the hash rate for the Bitcoin network has made a remarkable recovery since it crashed following China's crypto mining clampdown earlier this year. The Bitcoin hash rate has now topped 150 exahashes or one quintillion hashes per second, according to data from analytics provider CryptoQuant. On August the 24th, the metrics provider reported a hash rate of 152 exahashes per second, which has tripled since it bottomed out this year on June the 28th at 52 exahashes per second. The recovery of the BTC hash rate means that the network is much more secure and harder to attack. I'm going to pause right there to say this. I don't need 152 exahashes per second for this for the Bitcoin network to be secured. It was secured at 8 tera or 8 exahashes per second. It was secure at 20. It was secure at 30, at 40, at 50. The amount of shit you got to throw at 50 exahashes per second hash rate is extraordinary, right? It's eye-watering. It's, you, you will literally tear up 
when you look at the amount of cash that you would have to throw to execute successfully a 51% attack on a network that's secured by 50 exahashes per second. I'm sorry, we are oversecured. Am I, does that mean that I'm like not happy about the 152? Fuck no, man, of course I'm happy about it. It's great because it shows resilience. It, it demonstrates everything that we've been saying about Bitcoin. This is why I was not worried at all, like one bit, one iota about the China syndrome. I don't give a shit because I already knew that we were oversecured at 172 exahashes per second, which was right around the top when we, when we got there, right before China decided to pull out its gun and blow its own head off, right? So I don't worry about sub 100 exahashes per second. I, I, I didn't before. I don't now. I started this podcast well, well before we even looked at 100 exahashes per second. Anybody who like starts screaming about the loss of hash rate and how it's going to result in governments being able to topple Bitcoin by a 51% attack clearly doesn't know what the fuck they're talking about. Stop, either stop trying to talk to these people intelligibly or give it one more go to try to educate them. But after a while, you're gonna have to stop wasting your time and move on to something else. Let's continue. Uh, The metric is now approaching early June levels, and if the trend continues, could hit a new all-time high within the next couple of months. Yay. Um, In early May, Cointelegraph reported that there was already evidence that hash rate was moving away from China. Details on the migration are difficult to come by. Cambridge University's well-sourced mining map has not been updated since April when it reported 65% of the hash rate residing in China. Measuring hash rate data by mining pool is also inaccurate since many pools are a mix of hash power from physical facilities and miners from all around the world pooling compute resources. Since the hash rate has now recovered, it would indicate that the minor migration is almost complete. This has resulted in an increase in difficulty with the last rise of around 7% occurring on August the 13th. The next one is due any time now, which will mean higher computational costs for miners as more of the formerly, uh, formerly China-based operations come back online to compete for blocks. The current estimate is for a 12.37% difficulty increase. And I think that's already happened. We'll check here in a sec. While the migrating operations were offline in June and July, miners already operating in countries such as the United States were able to rake in bigger profits due to the lower difficulty. This week, Cointelegraph reported that United States mining firm Riot Blockchain announced record revenues for BTC mining during the second quarter. All right, so let's go ahead and look at Clark Moody dashboard and see if we've had a difficulty change. Hold up. No, we have not. Uh, the, we have 15 blocks to go before we retarget, but that's going to be sometime today. The estimated difficulty change, according to Clark Moody dashboard is 13.6% and block times are coming in at roughly eight minutes and 48 seconds. But before we, I'm not even going to get into Clark Moody's dashboard like I normally do until we do the vital statistics. So let's go on and, uh, move on to some El Salvador news. El Salvador's Bitcoin adoption may transform remittance in Central America. I think it probably already has. They just don't know it yet. Osato Avin Namoyo is writing this one for Cointelegraph. 
the Central American Bank of Economic Integration, or CAB, <laughs> sounds like scabies, has identified remittance as an important aspect of El Salvador's Bitcoin adoption policy. Yeah, like 35% of their entire GDP comes from remittances. I'd say that the remittance policy is pretty fucking important. Sometimes, I swear. According to Reuters on Tuesday, the Regional Development Bank expects other Central American nations to pay close attention to Bitcoin's impact on remittance costs in El Salvador. Speaking to Reuters, Dante Mossi, Cabi's executive president, stated that neighboring countries will be incentivized to follow El Salvador's example if Bitcoin offers significant cost reduction in the remittance markets. The KB executive described El Salvador's Bitcoin adoption policy as an out-of-this-world experiment that could foster greater financial inclusion in the country. Thus, the regional bank is helping El Salvador to create a technical framework for Bitcoin adoption. According to Carlos Sanchez, investment chief at KB, the regional bank is keen on helping El Salvador ensure compliance with global money laundering rules as the country attempts to utilize Bitcoin as a parallel currency. Sanchez described the process as being akin to navigated, yet-to-be-explored waters. <clears throat> I think they meant navigating yet-to-be-explored waters. KB's technical assistant files or assistance file flies in the face of opposition and criticism from the International Monetary Fund. Oh, who gives a shit? Indeed, the move could be seen as an indication of Bitcoin's ability to drive significant monetary policy discussions, at least on a national and regional level, even if the global financial establishment remains anti-Bitcoin. In June, economist Steve Hank, oh God, warned that Bitcoin could destroy El Salvador's economy, while Fitch Ratings has also raised alarms that the country's Bitcoin law could pose risks to local insurers. Yes, of course, right, whatever. El Salvador, for its part, appears to be moving forward with its plans to adopt Bitcoin as a fully recognized legal form of money in the country. Earlier in August, President Nayib Bukele announced plans to install 200 ATMs and 50 kiosks for easy Bitcoin to U.S. dollar conversion. The country's central bank has also published draft regulations detailing how banks can deal with Bitcoin. So, there you go. Now, one of the one question that keeps popping up in my mind is what happens if Latin America just tells the Western economies to fuck straight off? And I guess what this boils down to is this. If you do that, then you kind of cut yourself off from global trade. But ask yourself this. Is, is it really that necessary? Let, let, let me say this. <clears throat> Let's say they tell the International Monetary Fund, <clears throat> the um, World Economic Forum, and I don't know, all, all the European central banks, the, the Federal Reserve, the Australian you know, guys, tell them all to just go to hell. And then all the rest of those guys say, okay, well, look, you're not getting any rare earth minerals. How many people in, in Latin America are going to die because they don't get rare earth minerals? So they can't build a dirty-ass solar panel. So what? They have, like, Buku hydroelectric, right? <clears throat> or not hydroelectric, but geothermal. They also have a shit ton of hydroelectric, but let's just keep on track here. They've got energy. They've got oil reserves. They've got natural gas reserves. They have a sh metric shit ton of geothermal. They got a lot of hydro, right? What if they just 
tell them that they're not, you know, we're not going to do KYC. We're not going to do AML. What are you going to do about it? Were you going to invade all of Central and South America? That's like, that's like invading China or invading the entire continent of Africa, right? So what if they just tell them to fuck straight off? I would love to see it, but it probably won't happen. And if it does, it probably won't happen in my lifetime. Let's run the numbers. CNBC.com futures and commodities got uh, flammable liquids are, are on the rise a little bit. We got uh, West Texas Intermediate up a third of a point to $67.75. Brent North Sea up almost a full half point at $71.38. Natural gas dipping by about a half a point, $3.87 per thousand cubic feet. And gasoline is $2.20 a gallon after a 1% rise in the futures price of gas. Gold has dipped below 1800 again by losing almost a full point. It is at $1,792.20 an ounce. Silver likewise is down three quarters of a point, $23.71. Platinum is down a full two points. Copper is up a half point and palladium is down almost a half a point. Agricultural futures are mixed with no clear mover except for wheat, which is down over a full point. Uh, indices, Dow futures is up 0.02. S&P futures up 0.0, or not up, down 0.03. NASDAQ futures down 0.08. S&P mini <clears throat> is up 0.08. Real money pegs price at $47,426.80. Two hundred and sixty-seven thousand transactions on the Bitcoin network have been performed in the last twenty-four hours. That's just over eleven thousand transactions on average per hour, with one point one million BTC being sent around the horn in the last twenty-four hours. That's roughly over forty-five thousand Bitcoin being sent every hour on the hour, with an average transaction value of four point one five BTC and a median transaction value of zero point zero one six. BTC getting back up to almost 800 bucks, which this one is right at $760. Block times as reflected here, uh, basically are eight minutes and 53 seconds, which is what Clark Moody said. We are taking a 0.09 BTC in fees on a per block basis, 15.2 BTC being taken in fees overall in the last 24 hours. Uh, now this is bitinfocharts.com and this is looking like we've lost 11.7% of the hash rate in the last 24 hours and are now down to 127.68 exahashes per second. There may be some people trying to, you know, I don't know, like influence what's actually going to happen with the difficulty adjustment by doing that. If that is in fact correct, it's really hard to find, you know, good estimations on hash rate because it's not something that you can directly measure. It's not like all the miners are sending out some kind of audit like every second as to what their hash rate is doing and that there's some kind of centralizing force that collects all that data, adds it all up and gives us a hash rate, all right? Now, it's an estimation. It will always ever be an estimation. There's no way that you can directly measure hash rate, 
it is something that you have to get through secondary means. And most of the time we do that through how long it takes, you know, on average for a block to be, to be built along with a couple of other items anyway. So let's talk about, uh, the Clark Moody, the, the Clark Moody Bitcoin dashboard. We have 2,196 transaction waiting on two blocks to clear. We are below $90 billion of market capitalization. We're standing at $893.2 billion, which is 7.64% of gold's entire market cap. And yet we can now get 26.5 ounces of shiny metal rocks for your one Bitcoin, of which there are 18,796,916.5 of 2,348.12 BTC is locked in the Lightning Network with a capacity value of $111.6 million being run over 14,500 nodes that we can see, boasting 66,500 channels. Tor capacity, all-time high again, I believe. 73.8% of all the Lightning Network is now operated over the Tor Network. That is 1,733.6 BTC in the Tor side of the Lightning Network, being run over 9,204 nodes that we can see. Uh, Clark Moody also reflecting a price of $47,554 per Bitcoin. That's going to do it for Vitals. Welcome to part two of the morning roundup. Coinbase users are angry with customer support after funds disappear from accounts. Ah, Coinbase. They're just, for the, one of the, probably the largest actual Bitcoin company on the planet, they don't have any customer service at all, apparently. Martin Young tells us more from Cointelegraph. Coinbase is under fire for terrible customer service following reports of users' accounts being hacked and drained of funds. According to a Tuesday investigation by CNBC, thousands of customers across the country have lodged complaints against the company. The outlet stated that it had interviewed numerous Coinbase customers who claimed hackers had drained their accounts, with the issue exacerbated, exacerbated by the exchange not responding to support requests. Oh, really, you think? Quote, interviews with Coinbase customers around the country and a review of thousands of complaints reveal a pattern of account takeovers where users see money suddenly vanish from their account, followed by poor customer service from Coinbase that made those users feel left hanging and angry. End quote. One Coinbase client, Taja Vidovic, claimed to have lost nearly all of her $168,000 in cryptocurrency holdings after receiving a number of password change security alerts in April. Attempts to contact Coinbase by phone were fruitless, she said. Another customer told the outlet that after logging into the Coinbase app in March, almost $35,000 in various crypto assets had disappeared from their account. Coinbase's regulatory response team eventually emailed the victim stating that transactions on the blockchain are irreversible, adding that Coinbase's insurance policy does not cover theft from individual accounts. They're not even going to reimburse them. Holy shit, dude. In March, the New York Times ran a piece on a helpless Coinbase customer who eventually sued the company after losing $100,000 worth of cryptocurrency. Other Coinbase users have taken to social media to vent their frustrations. 
For example, popular analyst Kaleo told his 360,000 followers that the company had shown an absolutely embarrassing display of care for customers. Here's the email, the uh, tweet. Kaleo at Crypto Kaleo says, my dad has been trying to access his Coinbase account with little to no help from Coinbase support for the past three months. Countless emails, either with incredibly generic replies that don't address the issue or completely ignored. Absolutely embarrassing display of care for customers. The tweet, which was posted less than a day ago, had already attracted a stream of responses from other Coinbase customers who had similar problems with support or have been hacked. Coinbase did actually respond to this complaint, but no individual or but one individual pointed out that quote. You will only reply and assist people who have many followers so your reputation will not go down to hell. What about us? Five months with no help. Locked account. End quote. Another user on Twitter said, I haven't been able to get into my Coinbase account for almost four months now. The worst. In April, when the company went public, Coinbase CEO Brian Mulrat Armstrong somewhat ironically told CNBC, quote, people no longer need to be scared of it crypto like in the early days oh yes you do if you're a coinbase customer you damn well should coinbase users have filed more than 11,000 complaints against coinbase with the united states federal trade commission and consumer financial protection bureau since 2016 and the majority of them are related to customer service this just this clown show just rolls on if you are a coinbase customer if you can get your shit off of coinbase learn how to use i don't know a trezor a ledger a cold card anything you have to get all of your shit off of coinbase i'm even talking to the shit coiners out there if you hold ethereum if you hold i don't know dogecoin and it's on coinbase get it off I mean, I, as much as I hate the whole shitcoin racket, I don't like reading stories like this even worse. Okay, so just be careful out there, y'all. MicroStrategy has purchased an additional 3,907 Bitcoins for $177 million in cash at an average price of $45,294 per Bitcoin. As of 23rd of August, we hodl 108,992 Bitcoin acquired for $2.9 billion at an average price of $26,769 per Bitcoin. Okay, so that was the MicroStrategy announcement. And we, you know, immediately dipped in price. <laughs> what are we, hold on, let's see what we're at right now. Uh, we are at... 47,000. Okay, so he's he's in the he's in the black for right now. But we immediately immediately started dropping in price. That was one of the other good pieces of news. Although there are people that are in my ear about <clears throat> how Satoshi's vision probably didn't include somebody buying up and ho and hoarding that much bitcoin. Satoshi knew exactly what was going to happen, all right? He didn't design Bitcoin so that I could tell Michael Saylor that he can't own any more than X amount of Bitcoin. That's his prerogative. He gets to buy as <clears throat> he gets to buy as much Bitcoin as people will sell them. All right. If you don't want Michael Saylor to hoard Bitcoin, 
don't sell your Bitcoin. Because when you sell your Bitcoin, Michael is on the other side of that trade. All right, it, it doesn't make any sense for people to bitch at me about talking about Michael Saylor, who's buying Bitcoin. I get to buy Bitcoin, you get to buy Bitcoin. Is somehow or another, is Michael an alien? Does he not have the same right to buy Bitcoin as I do? If you are one of the people that believe that this is quote unquote bad and Michael Saylor should be, I don't know what, stopped, then you don't understand the underlying ethos of Bitcoin. I can't do anything about Michael Saylor hoarding and buying Bitcoin and neither can you. And that's exactly what, how you want it to be. If for whatever reason, you were able to force a protocol change that caused me to be able to tell Michael Saylor that he can no longer have any more Bitcoin, Bitcoin fails. Get it through your head. The only way to stop Michael Saylor from hoarding and buying Bitcoin is to not sell your Bitcoin because that man is on the other side of every stupid trade. And a stupid trade is what? Selling your Bitcoin. Philippines looks to tax hit blockchain game Axie Infinity. <laughs> Use a VPN when playing the game, people, I guess. I don't know. I'm not a, I, I don't really know a lot about Axie Infinity other than the fact that it's apparently wildly popular. Uh, but Coindesk has this bullet point list from Eliza Gritsky, or, or sorry, Christy starts with a G. Literally. Her last name is Christy. I guess the G is silent, ah, whatever. Storms are gathering around hit crypto game Axie Infinity as regulators in its prime market, the Philippines, express their intention to tax the players and the publisher. Income from play to earn crypto games such as Axie Infinity should be taxed, Manila Bulletin reported Monday, citing Undersecretary of Finance Antoinette C. Tianco. Tianco said that whether Axie tokens are assets or securities is being discussed by the country's Securities and Exchange Commission and the central bank. The undersecretary also said that while the game's Vietnamese creator, Sky Mavis, is not registered in the Philippines, it must pay taxes in the country for any revenue created through local sources. Good luck with all of that. The SEC reiterated that the game and its publisher are not registered in the Philippines and that Sky Mavis doesn't have a license to sell securities, the Manila Bulletin said yesterday. Axie Infinity allows players to earn passive income using non-fungible tokens. Globally, it counts almost half a million daily active users and more than 60% of them are in the Philippines. Lee Kalan Butler, director of consulting firm M. Faris, wrote in a Coindesk column in July. Concurrently, the price of Axie Infinity token, Axis, or AXS, has increased dramatically from around $5 at the end of July to over 70 bucks at the time of writing. Holy shit, dude. I guess I should have been playing Axie Infinity. No, no, no. I'm, I'm, I'm just kidding about all that. However, video games, <clears throat> again, just here, this is what's odd. You know, I was talking before about how Bitcoin has been embedded in the legacy financial system and it's never going to be pulled back out because the likes of Citibank and Goldman Sachs. What's odd to me is that it wasn't video games first. It should have actually been video games that embedded Bitcoin into its legacy technologies 
first. The fact that it didn't gives me pause. I don't know. It just it was a, it's a natural fit for all this shit to be in, in video games. I don't necessarily believe that, you know, having your own token is the way to go, except for saying the following. If I have a science fiction game and I have a, you know, or like, now actually let's say like go back to Ultima Online days, like some kind of fantasy game, like, you know, fighting dragons and shit like that. And I, what am I going to do? Walk out, you know, I'm, I've been immersed in the game for like, you know, a couple of hours. I'm fighting dragons and goblins and shit. And then somebody wants to sell me a plus five cursed sword of death for Bitcoin. Completely blows the narrative, right? The, the whole thing about a video game is you're supposed to be immersed. You know, I mean, well, I mean, unless you're playing like, I don't know, Super Mario Brothers or something like that. But, but like most MMOs, you know, you're playing Diablo, you're, you're, you're baking and basting yourself in an immersive world. And the last thing that you want to do, or the first thing that will happen if you hear about anything in the real world is it pulls you back into the real world. And this, my friends, is the only reason that a video game can say, well, we have our own token because we don't want to blow the narrative. I agree with that. As long as that token can be exchanged for Bitcoin on the, on like when you are out in the real world, then I'm good with it. But for the most part, I, I think it's all, you know, like Axie infinity. Come on, dude. I mean, from what I can gather from the game, it's not all that immersive, but I haven't played it. So I don't really know if you've played Axie infinity, let me know. Is it immersive? Is it to the point where if they didn't have their own token and they were just using Bitcoin in the game, uh, you know, it would, would it pull you out of the immersion? Uh, I don't know. Uh, like, let's move on. Bitcoin lobby fails to sway house to amend crypto tax rules. <clears throat> you think? Hey, man, they're looking for any revenue they can get at this point. This is written by Jeff Benson for Decrypt.co. Crypto advocates have been hoping that the House of Representatives would save them from cryptocurrency tax reporting requirements they deem onerous after such a provision passed in the Senate. Hope is dwindling. The House voted 220 to 212 to bar amendments from consideration on the Biden administration's $1 trillion infrastructure bill. The agreement brought together progressive and moderate Democrats who had foreseen different ways forward for the legislation. The Senate this month passed a bipartisan infrastructure bill that would fund all sorts of bullshit projects legislators deem pork for their own constituency. Oh, I'm sorry, I, I pronounced necessary wrong, including bridge building and safe water treatment. To pay for some of the proposals within the bill, senators introduced a provision to change the IRS definition, definition of brokers to include those who deal in digital assets. Those brokers would then be responsible for filing 1099 forms with the IRS on behalf of their customers, meaning they would need names and addresses. The thinking was that such a proposal could garner $28 billion in taxes that might otherwise go unreported. Pausing here to just to say and adding, failing to understand that that legislation is unenforceable and nobody is going to do it except for those already regulated by the sec fuck you i'm not filing a 1099 on somebody who blows through my lightning node from one other node to another node to make a payment i'm not doing it screw you come find my node come find it it's about the size of a very thick credit card fuck off
with the while the requirements are certainly possible for centralized cryptocurrency exchanges such as Coinbase to meet, crypto advocacy groups such as Coin Center argued that the new definition of broker is too broad. If read liberally, the provision could incorporate incorporate those responsible for processing transactions on the blockchain, i.e., miners or validators. It might also affect cryptocurrency wallet providers and decentralized application developers. Such actors, they say, could not possibly adhere to the requirements given the decentralized and anonymous nature of cryptocurrencies. Privacy groups joined the chorus, calling the provision a backdoor method for increasing financial surveillance. A last-ditch amendment to clarify the provision and, it, <clears throat> and exempt non-custodial crypto actors failed in the Senate after Alabama Senator Richard Shelby blocked it, bitches. While the Treasury Department under the Biden administration was reportedly suggesting it won't enforce the tax reporting requirements on minors and the like, crypto advocacy groups believe the House should have amended the bill that now sits before them. <clears throat> As Blockchain Association Executive Director Kristen Smith told Decrypt earlier this month, rather than clarify language that isn't even law, we encourage the House <clears throat> to reject the crypto provision altogether and work with industry to craft language that keeps the U.S. a crypto innovation leader, end quote. If the House approves the bill, it will go to President Joe, who has promised to sign it. Of course he will. Now, let's talk a little bit about why they blocked it. Did they block amendments? <clears throat> so that they couldn't uh, so that they couldn't finagle with the language of the cryptocurrency portion of the bill. No, they didn't. That's not the reason the amendments were blocked. The amendments were blocked because it's $1.2 trillion in pork and all those dirty rap bastards want a piece of it. And they want a piece of all of it. They don't want a piece of a portion of it. And if they had allowed the amendment process to occur, which they should have, by the way. I mean, I think what's going on here is patently illegal, but whatever. <clears throat> then two things might have happened. One, the extent to which the $1.2 trillion would be available would have been diminished. All right. It probably not would have been added to. It probably would have been people trying to pull shit out of it. That's why one reason why they blocked the amendment. The other reason they blocked the amendment process, in my opinion, is that it would have taken freaking forever for the bill to get passed. All right. And they want that shit too. They want the money. All right. They don't care whether or not my lightning node is processing a payment and could be I don't know, taxable income that I need to file a 1099 on the person who did it, which by the way, I can't. It's impossible for me to know who goes through my lightning node. It's like, it's impossible for them to find my lightning node. They, I mean, yeah, okay. They break into my house. How many houses are they going to break into to find my house? Honestly, guys, I mean, it's like, look, they can break into mine. They probably know where I, I mean, I know they know where I live. If they're listening to this podcast, they know that I own at least some Bitcoin. They also know that I run and operate a full node. And they also know that I run and operate a lightning node. And they also know that that lightning node has open channels because I've talked about it on this podcast. And if, if the audio on my podcast is being scraped by the NSA and run through whatever AI computers that they have, they know, they know what I'm saying. Yes, they can come find my particular lightning node. Can they find yours? Have you, do you have a podcast? Do you talk about it incessantly? Probably not. 
you know, I mean, at least a good guts and feathers if you don't. Should I be talking about it? Well, I wanted to do the podcast. What was it going to talk about? Bird watching? No, I'm going to talk about Bitcoin. So yes, there are some of us where they can very well come in, kick my door down because they know where I live and know that I have a node and take it from me. And then I spin the node back up and, and re- recover the entire node on another device, unless they throw me in jail, in which case I'm a martyr. None of this looks good for the powers that be, people. There is no action that they can take at this point that isn't going to be the linchpin, the hair that broke the camel's back, the proverbial last straw that the masses just finally rise up against their enslavers and either kill them all or put them all in fucking prison. I don't know how it happens and I certainly don't know when it happens, but I know that it's probably going to happen and it probably should happen and it is probably for the best ethical and moral good. I'm sorry to be this way, but I'm done with these people. God, Jesus, I think we need a joke. Hold on. Terrible Joke Corner brought to you by Dad Says Jokes. I just found out Albert Einstein was a real person. All this time, I thought he was just a theoretical physicist. You can support this show through listening to it <clears throat> on the Breeze Wallet. Breeze Wallet, B-R-E-E-Z, has a podcasting app that is Podcasting 2.0 enabled inside the application, inside the wallet itself. And with that wallet, if you have Satoshis in your wallet, you can choose or choose not to pay me in Satoshis <clears throat> for every single minute of this show that streams to you. And that will help me support myself and the show. And Keep my ass getting up at five o'clock in the morning so that I can do this. I'll see you on the other side. This has been Bitcoin And, and I'm your host, David Bennett. I hope you enjoyed today's episode and hope to see you again real soon. Have a great day.